Go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. It's good to be with you. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you on this first week of Advent, looking forward to Christmas, reflecting on the coming of Jesus. If you're not familiar with Advent, which I wasn't when I first started going to church, um, it's the season on a church calendar where it's the four weeks before Christmas where we reflect. We reflect on the first coming of Jesus and his incarnation and him coming as a little baby and taking on flesh and, and, and living among us, God among us. And it's also when we look forward. We look forward to the day when God returns and renews and restores all that's broken, looking back to the first coming and looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. It's a season where we prepare our hearts and there are, are themes that tend to be associated with Advent historically. Often uh, that's what these candles represent. And those themes are hope, joy, faith, and peace. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take one of those words each week and do a little bit of reflection on it. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Luke 2. <clears throat> and if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone will get you a Bible. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on the theme of hope and how the coming of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming, bring us hope. And we're going to ask four questions throughout this time. We're going to ask the first question of, what is a biblical understanding of hope? The second is, what are God's plans for the future? The third is, what does hope like the real biblical hope, look like in daily life. And the fourth is that, is Jesus a worthy source of hope? So those are the four questions we're going to ask today. But before we ask those questions, I want to ask you a question, a question that you can discuss with some people around you. And, and, and let me set this up. Ethan Rode, or Rody, I, I don't know how to say his last name. What is it? Rody. All right. Ethan Rody. He's got a DeLorean. If you don't know what a DeLorean is, it's the car from Back to the Future. And he's a good mechanic. Imagine that he actually got the time machine stuff working in that car. And you could go to any moment in history, past or future, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna take the DeLorean? What moment of history are you gonna show up in? So turn to a few people around you and give them your answer to that question. <clears throat> All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. And, and I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you are the God over all of history, that you know the past, you know the future, and that you are the source of our hope. Would you increase our sense of, 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 
our awareness of your goodness and your trustworthiness today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question we're going to look at today is, what is hope? Hope is one of those words that everyone has this vague idea that it's probably pretty good. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many like 18-year-old girls who get that as their first tattoo on their ankle, you know? It's, it's, and if, if that's you, I'm not saying, I'm not throwing you under the bus. But you get a vague sense that it's, that it's a good thing. But often it gets, that word gets so distorted and washed within our culture that, it, that we don't have a real sense of the, the rich biblical meaning that the word hope carries. And we, we tend to view hope as wishful thinking. I can illustrate this by telling you uh, of, of, about one of the greatest culinary inventions that has ever come into this world. It's called the Wish Burrito. We grew up on Wish Burritos. My brothers and I, we lived in, uh, we had some hard times in high school, junior high. And we knew that toward the end of the month, there wasn't gonna be a lot of meat and vegetables in the house. But that was our time to shine. When we would create the Wish Burritos, we knew there would be tortillas. And we knew that there would be an abundance of condiments and other random things. And we would get to work creating these culinary masterpieces such as the peanut butter and Captain Crunch wish burrito. <laughs> the masterpiece of the spam and relish. Ramen and barbecue sauce. And, and my favorite was the, the sugar rice wish burrito where you made rice and sugar and you put a little drizzle of chocolate on top. Because, you know, there was only a drizzle left in that, in that uh, bottle. And the Wish Burrito, we would often know that the Wish Burrito was coming. Towards the end of the month, my brother and I, we'd be walking home from school, and we'd say, man, I sure hope there's some meat in the house. He said, I don't know. I think we're going to end up having a, a Wish Burrito. And we called it a Wish Burrito because it was, it was what you would put in a tortilla when you wished there was something else there. <laughs> And we were hoping that we'd get some meat. But with that usage of the word hope, it was more of wishful thinking. There wasn't a lot of confidence that that was going to actually happen. The way that we often use hope, the word hope in our day, is often when we talk about like Arizona sports teams. <laughs> when you say, are they gonna be any good this year? Will the Suns win? Will the Cardinals win? And you say, I hope they do. It doesn't convey a lot of confidence that it's actually going to happen. Desire for it to happen, but you don't think it's gonna happen. But the biblical idea of hope is much better than the Cardinals. <laughs> is much better than the sun's, is much better than a wish burrito. But the biblical idea of hope is, is the expectation, the confidence that God is gonna do what he said he's gonna do, a trust that his promises in the future are going to be fulfilled. As we look back into the past and we see his track record of faithfulness and over and over again coming through and fulfilling what he was saying he was going to do, delivering his people, rescuing his people, and then looking forward out into history for a, a sense of perspective 
knowing that what God is ultimately going to do when he comes to renew and restore all things has some meaning for us today and gives us a sense of, of hope and the ability to, to love our neighbors and to engage in this world when we would want to draw away from it in cynicism or naivety. Hope is, it's, 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 like, it's like the time travel of the heart. If you could, it's like going back into history and seeing what God has done and going forward into history and seeing what he's gonna do. And just as anyone who has seen any movie or any TV show about time travel, you know that once they've had that experience and they come back to the present moment, there is a unique perspective, a unique way of living and thriving, even if it means you're just gonna bet on basketball games or something like that. But having seen a glimpse of that future means something for today. And the passage that we're gonna look at in Luke 2 is the story of Simeon and Anna. These two people that often get overlooked in this Advent season because they're not there in the manger, they're not there with the shepherds, they're there after Jesus is born. About 48 days after Jesus is born, he goes to the temple, his parents take him to the temple, and, he, and he's encountered by Simeon and Anna, who announced that this is the Messiah, this is the hope of the world. So let's go ahead and look at the passage, open your Bibles to Luke 2.22, and it says, and when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they had brought him up to Jerusalem to, be, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So let me just set the scene here. It's about 48 days after Jesus has been born. Joseph and Mary, they're taking a little trip. They're going to the temple. It was, uh, it was a part of God's law that the, the firstborn animal of, of, of any flock would be sacrificed. And that the first child born to a family, you would go to the temple and offer a sacrifice as a part of honoring God as that child being consecrated to God. So they were going to the temple, and Mary and, and, and Joseph, it says that they had a pair of turtle doves and young pigeons. That was the least expensive, allowed sacrifice for the poor, the poorest of the poor. It was the, it was the Kroger brand sacrifice that you could bring in that moment. And, and so they bring the sacrifice, and they're celebrating the birth of Jesus, and consecrating him to the Lord. But you can imagine in that moment what they might be wondering about. They're looking around and they're probably seeing other babies about that age, and there doesn't seem to be much that's spectacular about this particular baby. It's a baby. And they're remembering the angels and they're remembering the virgin birth. But they might start to be wondering, here we are, all we can afford is a couple pigeons that we're bringing to the temple. And wondering, is this all legit? And then they encounter a couple of prophet-like figures who spend their time in the temple, day in, day out, waiting for the Messiah to come. And we see in verse 25, it, we're introduced to this man, Simeon. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem 
whose name was Simeon. And he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he had, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the spirit, into the temple. And when his parents, when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to, to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and here's Simeon, he's in the temple, day in, day out, he's this devout man waiting for God to step in and make things right, and he sees Jesus and embraces Jesus and holds him in his arms and prays this prayer, that this prayer, if you know the themes of this prayer, this is, is full of the whole hopes of God's people in the Old Testament bound up in this prayer. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people, Israel. This, this old man, he has been his whole life going to the temple praying, longing for the day that God would come and step in and make things right. When it talks about this phrase, the consolation of Israel, there was this understanding that the prophets had spoken of a day where God was going to come and send this Messiah, this chosen one, this kingly figure who's going to come in and overthrow all oppression. Get rid of all that's broken and reestablish the reign of God in his land, in Jerusalem. And this would have been something that he would have been longing for because of the experience of God's people in, the, in that day. They were living under Roman oppression. Soldiers walked the streets, circled their temple, mocked them, bullied them, claimed the very space that... that God said had belonged to them. They were treated as second-class citizens. And furthermore, there was a great de degree of suffering and oftentimes oppressive leaders who would come in and oppress God's people. And they hadn't heard from God in over 400 years. The, 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 a prophet, God had not sent a prophet to give his word. And so here God's people are longing for God to come and to send his Messiah and to, to bring that day when things would be made right. And Simeon, in looking at this little baby, he realizes that he is seeing the one who he spent his whole life waiting for and praying for. He had been, at some point in his life, he had been praying and the spirit had revealed to him, you will not die until you have laid your eyes on the Messiah. And a part of his prayer is that, God, now you can take me. I can die because I have seen the Messiah with my very own eyes. And in seeing the face of Jesus, this little baby, he is seeing the face of salvation. In the peaceful sleep of this little infant, Simeon saw a glimpse of the ultimate peace of the world. In the weak and underdeveloped arms of this infant, he saw a glimpse of God's strong arm of salvation and rescue. And in this one tiny person, Simeon is holding 
God's enormous plan to renew and to restore all things. And so Simeon is having this moment, the pinnacle, the climax of his life of praying in the temple, and he is holding the Messiah. And then in verse 36, we see someone else enters the scene. A woman who, it doesn't say much about in scripture, but this is someone I would love to meet. If I could get in the time machine, I would love to meet Anna. And it says in verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. That's a polite way of saying she was an old lady. (laughs) Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then a widow until she was 84. And this, this was essentially the life she was living, it was one of, of sadness, of longing, of expectation. She had started off with her husband as a young uh, couple, waiting for, or looking forward to the family they would start together, the memories they would have together. And seven years into marriage, her husband dies, and she lives out the rest of her 84 years as a widow looking back at the sadness of that day. And it says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting uh, with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she had been, she lived as a widow which in that time was a very vulnerable situation to live in. She had lived with tragedy. She had lived in this Roman oppression. And day in, day out, she was coming to the temple and praying these prayers of longing that God would come and make things right and restore things and that she might be able to see the Messiah. And when she sees Simeon holding that baby, she recognizes that this is the moment when her prayers of longing and lament And begging God to do something turn into prayers of thanksgiving and joy as she goes and tells people about the Messiah who is here among us. And what we see in Simeon and Anna is we see this this perspective, this ability to look out into the future of God's promises and to trust in it and to believe in it. And in understanding God's future, they were able to grasp a reality from that day and bring it into this day. And to, for anyone to live without hope in those days, it would make sense to be cynical. Look at all these Romans around. Cynical. I believed that I was going to be able to live with my husband for a full life. Cynical. As you looked at all the brokenness and pain, but here they were, trusting and believing and having confidence and the promises of God, having hope all these years, and then they finally realized that the object of their hope, the one who was out there in the distant future, had moved into this present moment with them in the simple, humble body of Jesus. And they were looking for the day that God would renew and restore all things and send his Messiah. So here they were holding that Messiah. By trusting in God's plan for the future, they were able to live in the present moment. And so this leads us to the question, what are God's plans for the future? That's kind of a big deal. 
If you're going to trust in what's happening in the future, we should have a sense of what's happening then. And Tim Keller says this. He says, you and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. We are controlled not, how, not by how we live, but what we think will happen later. Christian hope has to do with the ultimate future, not the immediate. Now, everybody does every action based on what you believe is going to happen in the future. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. For instance, right now, if you believed that I was going to do a three-hour sermon and you were going to miss lunch, you would not be sitting here right now. And I'm not. Don't worry about it. Everything that we do, the, the thing that compels us to get out of bed in the morning is the sense that there is something in the future that I am moving towards. And what Keller's saying here is that in the, the biblical story, in, as, as followers of Christ, it's not about the immediate future, but it's about the ultimate future of where things are headed in the history of salvation that gives us our perspective, that shapes our very activities, our words, what we do with our present days. And you could tell that Anna and uh, Simeon, that they had this future-oriented hope perspective in some of the phrases that they used. In verse 32, Simeon uses this phrase that, he's, he, that the, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. And about Anna, it says that she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And these phrases, along with a lot of other phrases in the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, terms like salvation or the day of the Lord or liberty, are speaking in various poetic and uh, beautiful terminology about this day that was promised when God would come and make all things right, would restore relationship back to God, would heal the land, would set captives free, and would reconcile people, would, would do away with the brokenness that was in the world. In particular, the, the book of Isaiah was something that was being quoted a lot in their day and helping them articulate their vision of what God's future is and what this Messiah is all about. They might have read Isaiah 65, which describes Jerusalem as this renewed city where there's joy instead of tears, where there's homes instead of homelessness, where people sit under their own vine and their fig tree and they flourish in the land, where there's productive work rather than wearisome toil, blessing instead of curse, and the attentive presence of God rather than a sense of absence. They continue to use imagery in Isaiah that paints a picture of this day. One of my favorite images is, is in Isaiah 11, where it talks about the vicious, once vicious wolf, no longer being vicious, but now laying and snuggling with the lamb. And the little baby playing over the cobra's den. No need to be afraid, no need to fear. And my absolute favorite image from Isaiah is in Isaiah 2, it talks about Swords being beaten into plow, plowshares, weapons of war being reworked and refashioned into productive farming equipment because there would be no need for war anymore. And this imagery, this imagery is an invitation for us to imagine 
what it would be like if the worst of this world is, is reimagined and re, reshaped into the flourishing that comes when God's presence is there. And it calls us to imagine a future when God makes all things new and makes all things right. When that which is broken is mended. When oppressors are no longer oppressors. It, it, it's the same thing that happens in the New Testament in Revelation as well. In Revelation 21 where, where God says that he's making all things new. Not all new things. Getting rid of the old stuff. But all things new. And taking this broken world and renewing it. And wiping away the tears from the eyes of those who weep. And it compels us to imagine a day when Jesus returns. And he makes things right. And, and, and we can draw our imagination. Today we might not use the words swords to plowshares because I don't know of anyone who carries a sword or a plowshare. But if Isaiah was speaking in our day, he might say that graveyards become monuments and museums to celebrate the life that God has given. He might talk about hospitals being repurposed into playgrounds or band-aids, no longer having any meaning and for boo-boos, <laughs> but they would be stickers that children would wear with joy and pride because they're celebrating the God who has healed the wounds of the world. Warring nations finding peace under the reign of a true king, replacing their weapons of war with instruments of worship, their clenched fists with the hand of friendship. In the prophets, in Revelation, in, in, the, in the words all throughout Scripture, it paints a picture of this day that God will renew, restore all that's broken. And if we can catch a glimpse of that day through the Scriptures and imagine what that would be like, then that can infuse our present moments, no matter how distorted and warped they may be, with a sense of hope. So let me ask this. This is the next question. What does hope look like in daily life? Now, without that sense of there being a destiny for creation and God is going to step in and heal it, we are relegated to one of only two other options. Maybe there's more than that, but I think two are the main ones. One would be cynicism. As you look out into the world and see how messed up things are, where you can't even go on a drive without hearing about a tragedy on the news. The cynicism might say, God's not at work in this world. There's not hope in this world. You're not gonna trick me. And you become not the Grinch of Christmas, but like the Grinch of all of life, where you seem really sharp because you can deconstruct everything. The cynicism. Or naivety. The, the pendulum swinging the other way where you just put on a smiley face and you don't acknowledge that there is real pain and real suffering in the world and you kind of just say, well, if we could just do this and that, then it would fix everything. But what a real sense of biblical hope does is it allows us to live with the reality of sin and the ugliness of sin in the world and yet still have hope in the present moment. Because we have one eye that's toward the present moment and another eye toward the future when God makes all things new. And his future breaks into the present moment 
and allows us to endure and to engage and to not turn away. There are many examples in this church of people who are living that out. One of them I want to tell you about is Jessica Nicely. You might know her as uh, the one who's the founder of Winged Hope. So Winged Hope is the organization that we are partnering with for affordable Christmas. Basically, all the toys that are sold, any money that's made is going toward Winged Hope. And Winged Hope does some incredible work of helping women and, and children who have been abused, helping them get out of the situation and get healing afterwards. Last month, they helped 172 families, um, and, and, and it was, which is incredible. And one of the things I love about Winged Hope is not just what they do, but the story that it emerges out of. Jessica herself, um, and I asked her permission to say this, but she grew up uh, where she doesn't have early memories of her mother because she was abandoned by her mother early on and abused by her father as a child. And it was out of her sense of, of her having gone through that pain and encountered Jesus and some of the healing that he brings that she wanted to actually be a conduit of that healing to others and created Winged Hope. Now, my wife is friends with her and Jenny told me, she said, if there's anybody who has the right to be cynical, it would be Jessica. If there's anyone who, after seeing 172 abuse cases in, 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 a, in a month, and knowing what she's known from her past to say, this world is messed up, there is no hope, it would be her. But one of the things that baffles me about her is I, I've often asked her, like, how do you sleep? And she says that she sleeps well. <laughs> she, she prays, she weeps, she engages the pain of this world. But there is something about her encounter with Christ and knowing that the day is coming when he will wipe away the tears from the eyes who weep, that he will heal what is broken, and that he will judge those who have harmed other people in the image of God, allows her to stay engaged in today and to not turn away allows her to live with a sense of hope and expectation, looking the brutality of the world in the face, but also looking, the face of, looking at Jesus in the face and the hope that he brings. And there are other stories of this happening around here. I know that there are people who are living with chronic pain and yet still finding ways to serve other people, knowing that the day is coming when Jesus will heal all the pain and the wounds. We think of the people we've encountered in La Limanada who live and thrive in that, in that town, in that, in that village, in that city, knowing that they will be working. They won't solve all the problems, but they are working toward a day when Jesus will come and renew all things and bring them the true and lasting city of God to La Limanada. I know of those who are working in their career and they, they know that if they just cut a few corners, they can get ahead in their career. But they're living with integrity and not advancing with a sense of knowing that they will have all of eternity to do productive work in the presence of Jesus and they can endure their moment now. There are parents in this church who are filled with pain for the fact that their kids will often go to school or go to different things. And, and the other kids, 
do not see their child and, and, and see them for who they are. And they know that there's a day that's coming when the one who we long to be seen by will look in their child's face and fully see them. And it allows them to live with hope. And so if we are able to catch a glimpse of God's future and bring it into today, it allows us to live with hope and not cynicism or naivety. Which leads us to our last question. Is Jesus a worthy source of our hope? Now, if you're familiar with Advent stuff and you're here at church, this may seem like a silly question, but think about how absurd it would have been for Anna and Simeon in that day to hold Jesus and to say, this is our hope, this little baby. I mean, Jesus couldn't even deadlift a toy truck in that moment. (laughs) Jesus couldn't clean up the mess of the world because he couldn't even clean up the mess in his own diaper in that moment. They weren't expecting Jesus to become like the the baby Yoda ninja who would just like go and attack the Romans or anything. But what they were anticipating is that through his life as it develops, and then they would discover through his death and resurrection that Jesus was the completely unique and distinct person amongst all other people because it was God with us. And there were many other messiahs or people who claimed to be messiahs in those days. And Jesus showed himself as absolutely unique among them. But we often are not comparing Jesus to the messiahs of those days. Often we are being tempted by the messiahs of our present day. The word messiah, it it means, has this connotation of the promised one. The one who's going to come in and, and can make things right. And believe me, there are things and people in our culture that we often treat as messiahs. And Jesus is greater and brings more hope than all of them. Let me name some of these messiahs. They might not even put themselves forward as messiahs, but often they can be treated that way. So I've got three categories. One is lifestyle gurus, like the people who rank high on Instagram and have the followers, and, um, or the, the, the life hackers, Tim Ferriss, those sorts of things. The other one would be the messiahs of elimination, the ones that say, if you just take away this one little thing in your life, just take away stress in your life, and everything will be okay. And the others are the messiahs of method, of if you just do financial planning this way, if you just raise your kids this way, everything's going to be okay. And so I want to take those one by one as we close and show how Jesus is the greater hope, the greater Messiah than what those things promise. So first, we got to talk about the lifestyle gurus. And in talking about this, a lot of these people can actually provide a lot of help But ultimately, they're insufficient to provide hope. So when I think about these people, you could think of the life-hacking skills of Tim Ferriss, or the vague spirituality of Oprah, or the ruthless minimalism of Marie Kondo, or the health concoctions and tinctures of Dr. Oz. But oftentimes, whether these people want to or not, They're treated by society as a messiah. You know that something is wrong. 
and that they are providing a template for life. And if you just life hack this way, if you just, if you just read these books, if you just put whatever goop Gwyneth Paltrow is telling you to put on some part of your body, you will be okay. And they're giving this template for what the good life is, for what a flourishing, hopeful life is. And while they might actually have some helpful uh, things to, 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 to put forward, they cannot provide hope. And what is better than the, than the voice of the lifestyle gurus is the life of Jesus. While the lifestyle gurus can give you a, a little sliver, a little helpful thing about one aspect of life, Jesus himself is the true humanity who has come and walked among us and showed us what it really means to love God, to love our neighbors, to flourish in this world, and gives us the big picture of what life is. He's the one with the better track record than Dr. Oz's tinctures. <laughs> he is the one who, uh, that God, faithfully acting in history, had promised that there would be one who was coming who would live with perfect righteousness, with perfect sinfulness, sinlessness, with perfect, the perfect life that we could not live on our own behalf, true righteousness. And Jesus was the one who lived that out. The lifestyle gurus say, if you just work as hard as you can to pursue X, Y, and Z, then you'll have life. But what we see in the incarnation of Jesus and the coming of Jesus is that he is actually the one pursuing us to bring us life. God in the flesh, walking among us, coming towards his humanity to restore us to the life that the health gurus and the lifestyle gurus cannot provide. They may provide help, and some of those things are really good, but only Jesus provides hope. And number two, the death of, of Jesus is greater than the messiahs of elimination. Now you might be saying, what do you mean by messiahs of elimination? Well, there is a thing that's happening right now where there's, there are a lot of messages that say, if you just remove this one thing from your life, everything's gonna be okay. We give some examples of it. How many times have you heard uh, the phrase of, I just need to cut negative people out of my life? <laughs> How many times have you heard the phrase, I just need to remove stress from my life? How many times have you heard the phrase, just cut some of that technology out of your life and then you will be okay? We see this in the minimalism movement, this movement that says you have too much clutter in your life and if you can live with less than 100 items, then you will truly be spiritually liberated and free. We see this with various health fads and food movements. Here's what they, they say that we should remove, sugar, Fat, carbs, meat, grains, lectins and beans, leaving us with only one safe food, one, broccoli. <laughs> and if the perpetual eating of broccoli doesn't kill you, I actually did the research and it'll shut down your thyroid if you eat only broccoli all the time. So is, is it about the removal of fruit? If you took all of those things together that people say you need to remove from your life, we end up with a world that is no, no, no people because we cut out all the negative people in our life. 
no work because we had to remove stress, no technology and no stuff, no possessions because you cut that out, and nothing to eat. <laughs> what we've essentially done is if you take all of those things together, we've eliminated life. But there is some wisdom to what's happening here that's this implicit uh, affirmation of our need for the, for the cross and for sin to be removed from this world. Because while these things are trying to isolate one problem in the world, what the biblical story shows us is that sin and the effects of sin pervades everything, our food, our relationship, my grammar, like even in this moment, fumbling over these words, it affects all of life. And we need someone to step in and to, to die on the cross for our sins and to deal with the sin that pervades everything. And Jesus says that yes, something has to be sacrificed, but it's not negative people and it's not carbs, but it is Jesus, the Messiah, dying on the cross, the sinless one for the sinful people, that he might bring us into a future without sin, Satan, and death. Yes, the elimination of some things, and I should probably eliminate some sugar, uh, can be very helpful, but it cannot bring hope. And finally, the Messiah of method. And that the reality that the resurrection of Jesus brings more hope and is more potent than the Messiah of method. And what do I mean by that? There are often messages that say if you just parent in this way, or young parents, you're probably going to get a, a lot of advice on how to get your kid to sleep. And it ranges from everything to just like ignore them for six days, <laughs> to like hover over the crib, uh, to feed them like a little bird. I don't, I don't know. It probably doesn't say that. That's probably not one of them. But there's a lot of stuff out there that says if you just take care of your kid this way, they'll be fine. No problems with whatsoever. Or there's a lot of literature that I actually really like on habit formation. But you can end up putting your hope in that and saying, if I can just habit my way out of sin, that, that'll work. Or Dave Ramsey, or even the spiritual practices that we talk about around here. The, 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 the formation project that we are working on right now is a good thing, and it is really formative for a ton of people, and we need to keep pressing into it. But once we start looking to the method of the different spiritual practices we do, rather than Jesus to be the one who brings us hope, then we've looked to a different Messiah. Amen. Now, what we have here is, is Jesus resurrected. And he brings more power and more hope than any of these things could ever imagine. Because ultimately, the problem underneath those problems is the problem of death. And Jesus has conquered death in his resurrection. 100% of all health fads and health advice and workout plans ultimately fails because you die. 100%. There's no style of parenting that can liberate a child perfectly from sin. There's no... Uh, perfect way of doing meditation or habits or budgeting that is going to bring about the hope that your heart ultimately longs for and that humanity longs for. 
But what has the power, what is more potent, is Jesus risen from the grave, the Messiah having conquered death, the problem underneath the problems, and the future of God's hope and restoration stepping into history, his body fully restored as a first fruit of what all of creation is going to look like, being absolutely worthy of our hope. So in this season, in this Advent season, let's not shun some of the good advice in the world, but let us recognize it as what it is. It's something that can bring help, but it cannot bring hope. And let this be a season where we immerse ourselves in the hope of Jesus that we find in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Where we look out into the future and see the, the restoration that God is ultimately bringing and live in our present moments with a hope that can only be explained by an encounter with him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have come to know and to see and to behold the risen Jesus. We pray that this season would be a, a deep and profound uh, encounter with you in a sense that, that you are here among us and that in beholding you, we would have hope. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are here among us and we pray that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.